Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a very strange day here in the capital, empty, dreary, but still pressing on. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Shaheen Mamoon, director of Black Antelope Group a group of companies which specializes in business-to-business services in the legal, coaching, and consultancy sectors. Shaheen, hello. Hello. Good morning, Matthew. Good morning. Thank you for coming on the program today. Uh, Should I assume uh, I'm speaking to you while you're working at home? Um, Absolutely. Um, Working from home, one of the uh, major aspects that we invested in our business was actually remote working. Mm -hmm. Uh, So at a time like this, we're still up and running for business and it's not really affected our staff because of the infrastructure we were initially able to invest in. So we're using video conferencing, Skyping, etc. So it's business as usual, uh, but we understand the impact it's had on other individuals on a, day to, on a day-to-day basis. Well, of course, uh, this uh, wide-scale working from home would probably not have been possible 10, 15 years ago. Uh, it is quite incredible that uh, so many businesses, uh, although there are so many businesses that are affected uh, in this way, so many other businesses are able to continue to press on uh, remotely. Um, now, do you see any uh, long-term uh, challenges uh, to your business uh, due to uh, the current coronavirus outbreak? Um, absolutely. It's not just our sector, um, the legal sector, the professional services sector, but I would say the UK uh, economy as a whole. Um, down the chain, obviously, if one individual is infect, um, affected by what is going on at the moment, uh, that sort of has a knock-on effect down the chain. Um, so as to where um, organisations like ourselves are not feeling it per se now, I mean, in the long run, depending on the sort of measures that have been introduced, um, you know, government restrictions, etc., um, we will only be able to tell over time. Uh, but there will be a substantial change in the way of what people's working patterns and what sort of sectors will be actually thriving or uh being disrupted. A prime example is the aviation uh, industry. So there's going to be a massive, massive um, change in scale. So very difficult times, um, but there will be a lot of innovation and changes that will be coming through now. So uh, entrepreneurs like myself, um, it's always about thinking and being on the pulse and always planning ahead for crises like this. You can never anticipate crises are such as big as this, but Mm. it's always good to think ahead ahead of the curve. Now, of course, uh, in the past, you served as a trustee at the Habeas Corpus Project. Uh, And let me ask you just a quick question about uh, quarantine and civil liberties. Now, of course, in situations like this, um, uh, rightly so, uh, the government is taking action. uh, But usually in situations of this nature, we see uh, government restrictions and authority uh, expand to a great degree. And then when it's over, it contracts, but it never quite contracts completely back. Um, Do you foresee a significant loss in civil liberties uh, for individuals as a result Um, of this? That's a very interesting question. Um, What I would say, firstly, foremost, um, my background uh, being a solicitor as well, uh, one of the biggest sort of concerns we're facing now where people are being asked to self-isolate, stay at home, don't go to pubs, etc. Courts, for example, are still operating. 
um, on a normal scale. I mean, courts uh, have a lot of individuals, judges, lawyers, clerks, mm-hmm. etc. And that's a bit concerning when the guidance that's been issued uh, by the Lord Chief Justice and Lord Chancellor saying that courts, you know, justice will continue, especially in this climate. That's very concerning with all parties involved. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of civil liberties, um, you're absolutely correct. Um, it does pose a lot of questions as to how far the state will actually intervene in people's civil liberties and human rights for the protection of their individuals and nationals. We can only tell over time how far this will sort of entrench and how far this will actually start beginning to affect people. Um, it's always a very interesting question. and uh, We won't be able to sort of say until over time, but again, we need to be careful with how far human rights are being affected of individuals, how far people are being restricted, but also we need to be concerned with people's safety. So it's always a quite a difficult balancing act. Of course. Well, on to the subject of leadership. And as longtime listeners of the program will know, my favorite question to always start off the conversation on leadership with uh, is, what does the word leader mean to you? Very, uh, very, very interesting question. And this is something that sort of inspired me throughout my career, um, being a lawyer and then going and becoming an entrepreneur from university. Um, traditionally, the sort of perception I had of what a leader was, was pretty much similar to what other individuals had. Uh, the sort of image of like a sort of army general, someone who's leading from the front, someone who's very, you know, forefront outspoken, someone who's quite aggressive, you know, who shows leadership, who people follow. I think that's what the traditional sort of view mm-hmm. was of what a leader may have been. Uh, throughout my time in studying and meeting a lot of individuals, networking and actually going into business, like co-founding Black Antelope, uh, I realised the definition of leader is more than that. It's not actually what we perceive traditionally as like an army general. It's more, it's more of a role that concerns yourself and the people around you. So usually when people say, what is a leader? I like to replace the term leader with someone who's a visionary, someone who has a vision and they're willing to execute it and they're willing to have a plan and they're willing to have a group of people, a group of initiatives to bring it forward together um, to actually execute that plan. So I think the biggest word that I would use that explains what a leader is, is collaboration. Someone mm-hmm. who's willing to collaborate and the sort of initial idea of someone who's competitive, doesn't want to sort of communicate with other individuals gone out the window. So being a leader in this day and age is someone who actually listens and someone who's actually willing to execute their vision. So within your business, you form a real collaborative uh, workspace, I'd imagine. Yes. Um, so back. we... Uh, we are quite unique in the sense that we have very sort of young entrepreneurs who come from legal backgrounds, different backgrounds. And one of the things that makes us unique is the fact that we've sort of bridged a gap in the legal profession between solicitors and barristers mm-hmm. who are traditionally seen quite isolated in terms of their practice. Of course. Bridged under one roof. Well, let's go back to the very beginning of your career when you first started out your working life. Were there any particular individuals or circumstances that really shaped the way that you lead today? Um, so initially when I sort of came out of law school and was looking to undertake my training contract, so I was doing a bit of shadowing, took on some temporary roles as paralegal, um, initially started my career. Um, the leadership skills that I came under, so from 
like supervising partners and lawyers, uh, there was very conflicting opinions as to what leadership was. And once you sort of experience that early on in your career, you sort of realize and emphasize what you want to be in the future and how you would want to uh, participate in your own business or if, in your own practice as a lawyer. Um, mm-hmm. One prime example is the sort of um, mentorship that I got from a lot of lawyers. And the one thing they really emphasize is the whole idea of collaboration. This hostility between each other is actually redundant nowadays. You get more achieved if you work together rather than actually sort of become aggressive and sort of try to fight with each other, especially in the legal sector. And that's inspired me to sort of take a different sort of approach and really influenced me as to why I ended up um, sort of co-founding my sort of own company at quite a young age rather than sort of working for an individual or an organization because the vision that I have of lawyers working together and delivering services at quite a unique sort of experience for clients um, doesn't always fit with the traditional model of what a law firm is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Traditional law firms are quite all outdated, uh, very difficult to approach for clients, very expensive as well. And one thing I realized is you have to adapt to the market. And by adapting to the market, you need to show leadership skills to show that you can actually manage it and adapt within the market. Well, uh, Shaheen, unfortunately, our time together is drawing to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for Black Antelope Group? Um, very, very exciting projects coming up ahead. A uh, lot of uh, public speaking uh, events going on. Uh, we're collaborating with other lawyers per se. Uh, we've got some initiatives uh, coming forward, some charity events, uh, some seminars as well for young entrepreneurs. Uh, our biggest concern is obviously for the general public to come through safely through the current climate. But within the next 12 months, fingers crossed, we've got some exciting projects coming through. Well, Shaheen, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you. And I very much hope that you come back on the program when all th- all these things have settled down. <laughs> Shaheen, thank you. No worries. Thank you, Matthew. That was Shaheen Mamoun, director of Black Antelope Group. And now, if you haven't heard it before, it's Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool. Many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where... Um, so Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership 
it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over the years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that, that calibre, can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager obviously like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peters? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did. Again, mm-hmm. again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain. Um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters who was a fantastic player and some, as far as Martin's concerned I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was in terms of inspiring confidence I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me I guess would be the captain Bob Moore although he was only uh, about eight months older than me he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier he played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident, I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships, and you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction, people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that, but obviously... Uh, after uh, oh, at West Ham, your uh, plane came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most 
powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, up naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand. Whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you, it can have a, a great impact on your <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict. But at times, you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn sheet, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising they were not. There was no necessary reason for it, but looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. So I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think... Mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't. You're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really. Looking back, how, how 
So I never really felt people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that I'll show you. He got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall, they were great, hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball and looked round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It it's too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want you got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go on. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or 400 people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and that you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to come up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. Just, but then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, me laugh that If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. <laughs> um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think, 
um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened, when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, uh, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding, I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is, is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen, we've seen, we've probably ever seen. And I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, well, the, the answer, straightforward answer is yes. Um, they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but 
the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate and I wouldn't pick any one player out. I think looking at so that... So many. Yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned. Uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And I, going back from an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with, all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, uh, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and- when it, when you put those ca- those questions and how you categorise those. I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. Showed. The word is te- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes, you know, together, everyone achieves more. And that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, Jeff, uh, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life. What would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job. Um, Thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. I don't think you can switch off. When you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level, you may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday. But I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organization. And I think that's. You're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, 
thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.